You're listening to Halfway There, episode number 236, Rob Lohman and Breaking Addiction. He's been through it, and he found Jesus on the other side. Welcome to Halfway There. This is the show where we have honest conversations with ordinary Christians about today's Christian experience. As always, I am your host, Eric Nevins, and I am so thrilled that you have downloaded. Look, there's so many podcasts out there today. It seems like everybody has a podcast. Uh, We've been doing this since before it was cool. So I'm glad that you're here and listening. Go back in the archives if you haven't uh, already. There's a whole bunch of good stuff there. Thousands and thousands of years of people walking with the Lord. And I know that you'll find something to encourage you today. We have a great conversation uh, with uh, my friend. He's it's kind of fun. We're, we're in the same city. I love that. Uh, he currently helps people suffering from substance abuse to find freedom from addiction and incarceration. He's going to share his story with us. He does a whole bunch more. We'll, we'll talk all about it. Our guest is Rob Lohman. Rob, welcome to Halfway There. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here with you. Yeah, you were kind enough to have me on your show last year, and that was a lot of fun. Really good. You do kind of a live thing, right? Yeah, I, a bunch of different ways to kind of grab people. You know, people have those short attention spans these days sometimes, and it's trying to mix it up a little bit for them. Yeah, I love that. Well, tell us a little bit about kind of who you are and where God has you right now. I give that really brief introduction, but I know there's a lot more to it. <laughs> yeah, where I am now, like you said, I mean, I'm I lived a life of addiction through, you know, chemicals, substances, alcohol, drugs, gambling, just those things were, were my life. And the one piece that was missing, the biggest piece that was missing growing up as a Christian my whole life was this whole identity in Christ piece. And that's why I'm so passionate about it now and what I do working with families and people that are seeking freedom from substances or just, you know, just bad behavior. And they just want to, they just want to change things. So I do that through multiple ways. Uh, the main way is, working with families with interventions is kind of my main thing I do, but podcasting and just other ways to reach people too. It's kind of fun. Yeah. I love that. Well, I'm sure we'll get to kind of how that ministry developed. That's a big part of your story. I know. So I want to hear all about your story. So you're, you're in Colorado now. Did you grow up here? No, I'm a mutt actually. Ah. Eric. Yes. I'm, I've lived multiple places. I was not an army brat or anything. It was just uh you know, just the life of Rob Lohman, uh, <laughs> my journey. Okay. So where, where would you call home? I'd say, I'd say Denver now. I mean, okay. Littleton, Colorado is where I live now. I've been here since, I've been in Colorado since 2004. So gotcha. I mean, this is the longest I've lived anywhere. I grew up in Indiana, moved when we were young to Texas uh-huh. and bounced around in my addictions. But I'd say home is, uh, Home was here in Little Colorado. Here. We we moved here about the same time then because we we moved to Denver in 2004, right uh, right after the election. So I voted in Illinois, and a week later I moved. So <laughs> there you go. You're a res- you're a resident somewhere. You know, I, I moved right. out here in 2004 after a broken down RV, which I'm sure we'll get to part of that story later. But yeah, I love Colorado. So okay, growing up, you kind of growing up around all over the place. Like where, like what was that like for you? Was your family? You said you grew up Christian. So tell me about that kind of how that worked. Yeah, so we, I was born in Fort Wayne, Indiana. You know, my cousins, aunts, uncles, grandparents, they all lived there. So it was this great family time of holidays and birthdays. And so it was that real close family knit culture. And I was kind of like your goofy glasses wearing, a little pudgy as a young kid kind of kid. But, but you know, we went to church and did the church thing. And then we, when I was in fourth grade, we moved to Fort Worth, Texas. And that was quite a culture shock going from Fort Wayne, Indiana to Fort Worth, Texas, where we had no family. Like we didn't know anybody at all. And uh, that kind of toyed with me a little bit as a youngin in middle school and elementary school and stuff. But, uh, but yeah, so it was, it was, a, it was a tough move for me at that age. And that's kind of when around 14 is when my life kind of started not reflecting the image of Christ, you could say. Yeah. Okay. Well, tell me that story. Like what happened? Well, you know, alcohol was one of those social things in our family, you know, lake, you know, drinking at the lake and with family, just watching it. It was just kind of a, an allure, I think you could say, and never really saw any abuse or anything, but at 14 years old, I was hanging out and this is good as we're on a good, you know, good Christian show talking about this stuff is I was at a young life youth um, event one evening in Fort Wayne or Fort Worth, Texas. 
and a guy came up and he's like, Hey, Loman, I got a six pack of beer. You want to go drink it behind the bushes? And I'm like, two girls, six pack of beer. Sure. Why not? <laughs> you know? Yeah. And we went right through the bushes and I just remember just drinking those beers really fast and just cracking the top. And it was like, ooh, 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 and they were, they were gone. And they were, the three of them were looking at me like, um, that's not normal. And that's really from that moment forward. I mean, my life evolved around alcohol and drinking and manipulating my situations. And again, yeah, definitely not to act like, oh yeah, that guy's part of young life. It was kind of like, hmm, let's kind of question that piece right now. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. So why did you do that? Like, what, what do you think question. that, where do you think I came from? I was pretty insecure. Um, you know, I was, I said, I lived this life as a chameleon. I was always trying to fit in. And I think moving to Texas, it was trying to like fit in really. Cause I, I still, even when I go back there, I still don't feel like mm. the way I fit in in forward Texas. I don't know why probably some stuff I should probably seek some counseling over yeah. like EMDR or something, <laughs> but, but the reality was, I don't know. It just in, in, cause a lot of my friends drank, I mean, heads of Christian organizations that were down there and church kids, they were, they were all drinking. Yeah. And it, not all, but you know what I mean? It was that thing of like, this was a normal thing. I mean, you go on the ski trip with the church and I'm bringing a flask of, you know, scotch or whiskey or something like that. And the other guy whose dad's a big leader is bringing some other alcohol. And it's like, wow. Okay. Why do we do that? I don't know. But uh, the thing is we, I never really got in trouble for any of it because I learned the art of manipulation and, and talking my way out of situations. And I thought that was a skill, which later I look at is that was, that was kind of a detriment. <laughs> so now I use that art of persuasion for good. There you go. Yeah. That was uh so it got you into some trouble. Oh yeah. Yeah. I had multiple um, overnights or arrests and, you know, MIPs, they called it in Texas minors in possession of alcohol. And, and that was just kind of high school, really. I mean, it was just, we'd go out and get drunk during lunch or drink during lunch and then come back to school. And, but I just, I was a smart kid. I was, you know, senior class president. I had a lot of accolades and things. So I think it was maybe overlooked sometimes mm. um, or just not wanting to open the eyes to recognize what was really going oh. on. So I was good at covering things up, I guess you could say. Yeah. Isn't it interesting? I've, I've been reflecting on that a little bit to this week. Like how, how is it that so many people can be so hurting and nobody notices? Like why, why is that? I, you know, I, I think, I think people don't want to notice. Yeah. Because then you have to address it. And if your son or daughter is hurting, then you have to address it and you have to look at yourself. Like what have I done incorrectly that they're this way or, oh my gosh, now my husband or my wife or something is like that. And if I look at that, really, then I'm going to uncover some things I may not really want to uncover. So I think there's that fear of just really knowing what's going on and how did I impact that negatively or just complete naivety. Yeah, there's responsibility, I think. Yeah, That's... yeah. When you, when you know that your you know, loved one, like let's say in my world of the interventions and stuff I do now, and you know, someone will call me and say, well, my husband's driving around and he has the kids in the car all the time. And he, I know he's drunk driving and stuff. I'm like, okay, right there. So would you let a stranger get drunk and drive your kids around? Well, never. Okay. Well, that's what, ha that's what happening now. Cause your husband or spouse or whatever is now a stranger under the influence. So those situations of now you have to do something and then that causes a rift in the family. But if you don't, I mean, people can die and loved ones can die. So I'm all about confronting from a loving perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So you were, you were kind of, I mean, those are pretty basically alcoholic activities, you know, for, yeah. from high school. Wow. Okay. So, uh, what, so where'd that go? Where was Jesus for you in that? Was he, <laughs> he was at church and he was in Bible study, but uh -huh. it wasn't, we didn't talk about it as like a crew of people. It wasn't like a topic of conversation. It was like, Hey, what are we gonna do this weekend? Where's the party? And so he was there. And, and it was in that journey of just kind of like, um, how do we, navigate this world of social life and Christian life. Right. And so we, so, so Jesus was there and I had this belief that yeah, I didn't do these foxhole prayers. Like some people I know, Eric, they're like, you know, God, just get me out of this. I'll never do it again. Cause I knew I was going to do it again. Yeah. Right. I wasn't at that point yet, but, but it was just, it was, it was fun. I mean, we were having fun. It was pushing the boundaries. It was just for us, it was fun. Cause there weren't a whole lot of, consequences. And when I went to college, so I went to college to become a doctor and I was like a real smart student, and everything, but going to college to become a doctor, then I was like free from the household. You know what I mean? And 
and I got in trouble my freshman year and sophomore year. And like all four years I was there, there was something going on. But if I had to get an A, I would just study. And I'd easily get an A, but I just didn't have that. I didn't have that foresight. Like there wasn't this, I wasn't seeking mentors or wisdom and saying, hey, what do I really need to do to, to accomplish these goals in my life? It was just like, where are we going to go this weekend? Which fraternity party can I get? In? Like, like, you know, crash or those things. And then it was like, oh, I need to, I need to get an A on this test. So I, you know, pass. So I'd get an A. And so those were the things, but my, my poor parents, they were just at home, you know, not really knowing exactly what was going on, but they were concerned that I may not be living the, um, they weren't, they weren't like straight narrow type people, but just, they knew I was maybe off a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. Fascinating. So I was off a little bit and you were off some. Yeah. So you just didn't have the, you said you didn't have the foresight, like, you you know, you were kind of more concerned about right now and and what you could do instead of like, which is interesting uh, because some of the science now says that you, your brain isn't really fully formed till you're 25. Imagine that, but you go to, go to, you know, college and you're out by 22 or something, 23 and and you're supposed to be a professional. Like, yeah, I don't, I'm not sure that worked quite like that. <laughs> yeah. And then you throw substances in there and I also right. had a gambling addiction and it was just, you live for the moment. Cause I, I say, I say this often. It's if you were to put potential and alcohol or substances in the same room, you know, the substances majority of the time just kick potentials rear end all the time. Cause it's just, then we have to change things and apply ourselves in a new way to accomplish goals. When over time, really, I mean, Eric, I started like not liking who I was becoming, right? So then there's this, I'm a Christian, so I got the savior part down. That was easy, right? But it's this whole lordship part, like living for Christ and becoming that Bible beater, I used to say, you know? Yep. And so so that was, I mean, that was just kind of college. It was just yeah. crazy story there. And then fortunately, I graduated in, under four, in four years, which was a miracle in itself. Wow. Did you, um, so did you think that like Christianity was just sort of this like Bible beater kind of thing? Like this, there's some people that are just really serious about it, but it doesn't really have any impact today. No, I, that was just kind of one of my excuses. Cause it's oh. funny, the girls I was really kind of attracted to were girls that were living a quality life and, yeah. and, and love Jesus. But I knew if I went that direction, I would have to give up all this fun. I was having all the blackouts and all the, <laughs> you know, waking up and, you know, in a jail or something like that and something happened or, you know, wake, you know, waking up in a car that I borrowed without permission, which I found out <laughs> in sobriety is called grand theft auto. And so all these things, I was just, I was really just really disconnected from what could happen when I did X, Y, or Z because I could always, I, I always got out of the, out of the situation. So for me, it was a complete disconnect of if I do this, well, I'll probably get out of this. And I kind of felt like, I, you know, this sounds weird to say, but I kind of feel like I kind of had God's favor because I hadn't died yet that I believed he was keeping me alive for a bigger purpose in my life. Mm. And that was just college. I mean, this went on until I was 29 years old. Just, just, I mean, I didn't get sober till, until 2001, but it was in the middle of that in my working career, my, you know, adult life and different careers that I had. I mean, it was always drinking and I happened to have bosses typically that liked to party and, so, but it was those things of, you know, like getting out of a DUI and wrecked car where I didn't die. And just, just, I was just an, I wasn't a, a consumer is what I was. It sounds like you had kind of awareness of God. Did you have any personal experiences of God through, throughout all that season? Yeah. I mean, again, it was it, it, just knowing, I mean, I knew, I knew I had that connection. I was just, it's kind of like I had God on a shelf mm. okay. you know, and it was just over there collecting dust. And it was like, if I really needed God, I would cry out for help. But, but again, I, I, I just knew I was going to do what I was still doing again. So it wasn't just like, God, get me out of the situation. And I'll, you know, when you got, you know, you're, you're walking down the hood with, you know, 10 of your, I'll just say this in a, and don't, please don't take offense as people, but you're, you're a bunch of, you know, 10 white guys dressed nice that went out to the bars walking through the hood because we were running from a taxi cab driver that kicked us out of his cab sitting there with our hands on the fence, getting arrested. It was like, okay, well, this is just another night out in the town with the boys, you know, not even thinking we could have gotten killed or not even thinking of what the situation we would put ourselves in. Often. Wow. And yeah, I mean, the fact I'm here is, is a testament to God's <laughs> love and grace <laughs> because I mean, I should be dead countless times if we went into like the, the years of drunk a you know, it was like, man, how do you, how did you survive that alcohol poisoning? And 
you know, jumping out of a boat at like 60 miles an hour. I mean, how did you, how do you survive those things? I'm like, I have no idea. But in my mind, I just convinced myself that God was keeping me alive for a bigger purpose. And now that I look what I do now, I'm kind of like, oh, wow, all that pain I went through. Now I get to help so many people. But man, I pray to God, my 13 year old son I have now. <laughs> Doesn't when do I started that. drinking at 14 does not go down that pathway because I have a lot of addicts, alcoholics, cousins, their kids, like people that like alcohol to uh, extreme. Yeah. Isn't that astounding when you think about your kids and, and their age, like when you figure out what you were doing at their age, like, <laughs> oh my goodness. <laughs> oh, man, I swear. They, I mean, they, they go to a great Christian school and stuff, but that doesn't mean that they're going to, you know, like go down the, the great path all the time. Right. Yeah. Well, they've, they've got to kind of learn on close. their own. They get, they know my, they know what I do in my experience. Like my daughter actually said to me once, like two years ago, she's 11 now. So she was around nine. She said, dad, well, I was just driving her to school one day. And she said, you know, dad, I don't ever want to drink alcohol. And I was like, hmm. I was like, oh, that's that. Why would you, why would you say you don't ever want to drink alcohol, honey, or whatever, however I phrase that. And she said, well, I just see what you do. And I don't want like, she doesn't want that to yeah. part her story. Right. And I said, I said, you know, honey, my, my desire for you is that you would be able to have a glass of wine with your girlfriends when you're older. Because there's nothing wrong with alcohol, right? It's the abuse of alcohol or substances, right? And, and I said, but the family you come from, right, on both sides of my family are alcoholics. There is, there is a gene in there that, you know, we can look at, could trigger or not trigger, but we're just going to keep an eye on this situation. And if, if I notice some things, we'll talk about it. But I hope you can have, when you're old enough to drink, a glass of wine with your girlfriends or, you know, a, a champagne at your wedding or something. But if not, it's okay. I've survived 19, almost 20 years. Right. I have now any alcohol in my system. So you don't have to have it. Absolutely. Mm-mm, not at all. Not at all. I love that. Okay. Um, so when did this come to a head for you? Like how did, how did that finally resolve? Yeah, it was, uh, you know, there, there was a, a big change in my heart. I was living back in Fort Wayne, Indiana at this time. So back to where I was born, right. <laughs> About to be reborn. And, but I really wanted a change in my heart. Like I, I mean, there was change brewing inside of me. I was like, I'm just sick of this. Like I'm just sick of this lifestyle. I mean, I had an alcoholic marriage that was based on, you know, drinking and sex and God was not in the middle of that. Right. And that was a short lived marriage. And then I had this freedom again. And, but inside of me, I just did not like the guy I had become. I was $67,000 in credit card debt, you know, at 29 years old. And I'm staring myself in the mirror I'm doing a lot with suicide ideation, right? I'm really thinking about like, it'd be better off, this world would be better off if I were dead. And so I started having these visions of me actually killing myself repeatedly over and over again, just like driving down the highway and seeing my car explode. And and it was just tormenting me, but I couldn't tell anybody because if I told somebody, I was afraid they'd lock me up or say, dude, you need to go to a psych ward or something. Because like normal people, normal people don't think about killing themselves. I'm like, well, d- give me a definition of normal. So June 7th, 2001 comes along and I'm just, it's a typical night. I mean, I just went out eight nights a week. I say, I mean, I drank and drove every night. Wow. And so the fact I never killed anybody is surprising because I drove in blackouts and I was just, I was, I just was not um, the person you really wanted to have driving around downtown Fort Wayne or anywhere really. And again, most of my friends did the same thing, but this particular night I was hanging out in the bar and all of a sudden, the bar gets completely dead silent. Like I couldn't hear the band or any any anybody. I couldn't hear a single thing except for a voice that said, "You're done." And then the bar got really loud again. I was like, "Holy cow!" I don't know what happened, and I don't really cuss at all, and I won't on your show. But it was like it's, things came out. I was like, "What the heck just happened?" Right? <laughs> yeah. And I looked at my buddy Sean O'Brien, and I was like, "Man, I don't know what just happened, but I need to go home. Uh, I think I'm done drinking." And he chuckled because we drank all the time together. <laughs> and then next thing I know, I'm driving home. And there was a big shift that happened inside of me where I, I really felt different. Wow. But at the same moment, I was highly intoxicated, right? So it was yeah. this weird kind of what's going on in my head. And I'm driving home. I'm really emotional. Thinking I'm done drinking is what I was like, wow, I can't believe we're finally here, right? And I get to my one bedroom apartment and I walk up 12 stairs to my loft apartment. And next thing I know, I'm laying down on my workout bench with 350 pounds on the barbell. And I pick that barbell up off the rack and I drop that barbell across my chest. Ouch. Yeah. And in the, in the moment of me 
taking that action to pick it up and drop it and unhinge my elbows, like the lightning speed of time that happened between that moment, what happens next was like God intervening because what I believe happened was God grabbed that bar because I, I mean, I couldn't hold that weight myself even sober. Right. Right. But God holds the weight of the world. Right. So here's God holding that bar. And next thing I know, my dog is nudging my leg with that kind of you know, like dog head tilt, like looking at you, curious, like, what are you doing, dad? Yeah. And my first thought was, who's going to feed you tomorrow morning? Right. And so my heart completely breaks for my dog. And I start thinking about my mom, my dad, and my brother, and my family. I'm like, what am I doing? You know? And here's God holding that bar. Like, are you ready? Okay. And I just remember putting that barbell back on the rack or he did. Mm-hmm. And, and I, and I can hear, I can hear the clink of that barbell hitting the rack as I tell you the story too. Right. Wow. Cause it's very, pivotal point in my life and the next thing I knew like I'm pouring out my two full bottles of scotch in my kitchen because that's about how much I could drink in a day wow because I say I was in sales and marketing so I was entertaining clients but we'd party till three or four in the morning and then I'd get up and go to work the next day a lot so that was like you know could be an extreme night right but we pour we God and I poured that alcohol out and I just felt complete peace like I was a different guy Right. And I woke up the next morning or that morning and meant to call my aunt Carol, who's now passed away, but she had about 25 years of sobriety then. And I accidentally called my parents, which was the prayer that my mom had been praying for years was now answered that I reached out for help. Right. And she knew I was not doing well, but didn't know how bad it was. And so parents, loved ones, don't ever quit praying for your kids, your friends, your uncles, your aunts, whatever. And I cried for an hour. My mom cried for an hour and my aunt picked me up and took me to my first AA meeting in the back of a bar in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And uh, <laughs> that was my first meeting of willingness. Cause I, I got sentenced because of some court stuff before, but I went back there and there were these happy, joyous and free people. And I see the steps and it talks about God. And I'm like, I'm home. And I just jumped in. I'm a kind of extreme guy. Sometimes I just jumped in all in like, I quit drinking. I threw my TV out in my apartment, like anything that wasn't wholesome. Like I got rid of magazines and CDs. Like I went on this like clean house rampage and the incredible thing. So I'm in this small percentage of people, Eric, that I did not go through detox or withdrawal. It was almost like I had never, ever drank Mm. ever. And I've not had one craving in my entire recovery, even like going through prison and stuff later, which we'll get into probably. Uh, But it was like, I've never had one. It's like I never, ever picked up alcohol ever in my entire life. Wow. You were just done. God, yeah. God said God, you were done and, and you were. It. He delivered me. And I'm like, man, wow. so amazing. Now, my gambling addiction stuck around for many years afterwards, which caused some issues in my life. But the alcohol and substances was was just gone completely. Mm. And were so you grateful for that moment. With the barbell, were you trying to hurt yourself or was that... What was the it deal that I didn't write it out on a napkin. It just, it was happening, but I'm unsure my intention was to kill myself. Cause I mean, oh, I, okay. was, I mean, it was 350 pounds, all the weight I had there and just to drop it. I mean, that was the, yeah. 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 Okay. Gotcha. I just wanted to make sure I was understanding that. Right. Um, okay. So yeah, <laughs> that's, hey. that's a lot, man. That's a yeah, lot. That's, that's heavy, dude. <laughs> that's, like, uh, you know, but when I, like when I sit down with families now and I do, interventions around substances and things and they're you know i'm sitting down there with their loved one they're like well how do you know me man how do you understand what i'm going through i was like well let me tell you a little bit of my story and they're like oh okay proceed okay you've been there <laughs> i get it yeah absolutely wow so that that's so that's kind of what prompted you to get sober which i i love that story it's amazing to me how god shows up and you know i'm, I'm so convinced that those, which I maybe wasn't when I started the show, but that those kind of mystical experiences where God just like talks to you in a bar, right? Like it was crazy. That's the only time I've, I say I can, <laughs> I've audibly heard yeah. what I have to just say was the voice of God and uh man, but it was, it was, it was a, it was an incredible night, but it's enough. And I expect that you probably don't ever doubt his, his reality, right? Like no. that's just not a thing you're going to do. No. Okay. So you said that gambling kind of led you to some other, some other places after that. So like, when did you first get into gambling? Was that just part of the lifestyle or was it like a, yeah, I was 15 years old. I remember sitting at my buddy Case's house playing just coin games and it, I mean, it was crazy. Like I'm 15, right? I got like a little mowing business and some money coming in, but, but we would be dropping like a hundred, 200, $300 on a hand at 15 years old. Cause, because you're like, you can't go out. Cause you gotta be, yeah, be tough. Craziness, right. And it's like, 
all those things. But yeah, and that just, I mean, it's just continuous scratch tickets and trips to casinos. And, and, and what people don't understand is gambling is a completely different world than substances because it's called a process addiction, mm. right? So, like addiction with substances, drugs, alcohol, you have to put something in your body. But with like sex and drugs or sex, gambling and food, those like food, you put stuff in your body, but it's still a chemical release in your brain. And so I had this dopamine deficiency in a brain, like you said, doesn't develop till you're 26, right? And you're, doesn't finish till you're 25 or 26. But like, I had this dopamine issue in my brain that was just depleted and I had to do stuff to feel excited about things. And gambling was one of those aspects of my life that just remained constant until two and a half years ago. Wow. Okay. So how did that, how'd that go down? Yeah, that was, well, so, you know, I'll just say this recovery was awesome. Uh, you know, it was 2001 and it, I was, I was Mr. Recovery. Cause when you get sober, I had to learn how to date, read books, play golf, play softball. I had to learn how to do all that sober because I was always intoxicated. So I learned how to do those things sober and I did a bunch of cool things, career transitions and stuff in recovery. Cause they say that in recovery, you can do anything you put your mind to, as long as your spiritual conditioning is solid, right? Now, my spiritual conditioning is Jesus Christ. You know, a lot of people in recovery is just God of their understanding, okay? I respect the program, mine's Christ, obviously. And so over time, you know, I ended up um, just, again, a couple transitions, but in 2004, I moved to Colorado after a broken down RV. I was working on a documentary and a book I was writing and just cool story in there. It's called the momentum journey and just some neat things about people's life stories. Right. So I'm living in the beautiful mountains of Vail, Colorado. And then one day I decided to come over to Denver on a youth retreat and I meet my wife, my current wife, Jennifer, and she was working for K-Love radio. And I was working on this big three-day Christian music festival. God called me to, and all of a sudden we just connect and we're like, I think we're supposed to be together. You know, less than six months later, we got married you know, and just a beautiful thing there. And her dad was dying of cancer. So we ended up getting married earlier, which was not the beautiful part. Um, but, you know, we've, we've had a, a fast and furious journey in our marriage. And over time of being married, now I'm a father, I mean, a husband, right? I wasn't a husband when I got sober. And then my son Zeke was born in 2007. Now I'm a father. I wasn't a father when I got sober, right? So these insecurities are starting to creep up. Mm, yeah. You know, and, and I tell people, like, it's great that you felt like you dealt with that issue when you were single. It's probably good to continue to deal with some things when you get married and have kids because those things start coming up in a different way. They have a different face to them, a different way of self-doubt and things like that. So over time, that started creeping in self-doubt, that I could do this, that I could take care of my family. And there are certain situations that happen that, you know, were blatantly in front of my face that says, you can't do this. And I'm like, yes, I can. And so over time... My daughter was born in 2010 and I had a business. I was running an insurance company and I, it was failing because I was not hitting my numbers. Right. So at, in 2011, I based on a series of a lot of things that we'll get into, but I just convinced myself that I had failed as a husband and a father, as a businessman. Like I wasn't really doing recovery anymore mm. because I had, I became a man that was faith driven to be fear driven I became a man of abundance mentality to scarcity mentality. You know, I became a man that was basically having my life run by the lies Satan was telling me instead of the truth that God is telling me, which is why I'm so passionate about identity in Christ stuff now, because here I am 11 years into sobriety now, 2012, gambling like crazy because my finances were out of wacky. And so I'm sneaking off to casinos, doing scratch tickets, lying to my wife about our financial situation. I had debt from my business I lost. And so I was a mess, <laughs> you know, another recipe for disaster. I was dealing with suicide ideation again. I was physically harming myself to where I would punch myself in the side of the head to get that dopamine rush. Mm, wow. I would literally get a flash of light. It happened one night in my insurance office. Just, I was like, oh, why did I, I mean, it just happened. I was like, why did I just crack myself in the side of the skull? but I saw a flash of light and then I was like, Oh, and I would just get back to work. Wow. The weirdest thing ever, but it actually in a weird way felt good. And it got me out of my mental paralysis. I started doing that repeatedly to the point where I couldn't even put my glasses on. Like imagine the glasses like you have on right now, 
you can't even put them on because the pressure of your glasses on the side of your head was too intense. Wow. Yeah. So I obviously hated who I'd become. So fast forwarding to my, the next, you think the alcohol thing would have been my bottom, right? People say, Oh, that must've been your bottom. Like, no, that was substance bottom. Now I'm dealing with chemical like issues with gambling and dopamine and control issues. I didn't know I had a problem with and OCD issues and all this other underlying stuff. I never knew I needed to deal with. And so here we are, February 14th, 2012. And we watched an inspirational movie that night called seven days in utopia. Have you seen that? No, it's a good movie. It's a really good movie. (laughs) When I look back on it this day, it wasn't, but later on it was. And, but it was the story of a, a young man or an adult man that never measured up to his father. Right. And I felt like I never measured up to my wife's expectations of me. Mm. And so that was a reflection of how I had failed in my life. So I saw the pain in the pain, not the beauty and the redemption of this movie. And so they all go to bed and I'm up late and I'm just working on a side job and, you know, looking for a job really. And all of a sudden I was like, you know, forget, I'm just going to clean the house. And I hate clutter. I didn't know how bad clutter bothered me then, but our whole house was clutter and had been for a while based on a remodel we were doing. And the next thing I knew after getting off the couch, I was on my covered patio and I'm setting some boxes on fire on my covered patio. Oh, wow. Right, right up here across from CCU in, in Lakewood, you know? Yeah, yeah. Here, here, here in Lakewood, Colorado. And um, again, it wasn't something that was planned. It's kind of like laying on a workout bench with 350 pounds. Like it was just kind of a subconscious mental autopilot. And so here I am lighting some boxes on fire and I was like holy cow what the heck am I doing yeah and then I ran inside shut the door and ripped my wife out of her bed we got she got my daughter who was two out of her crib my son was four out of his bed and we run downstairs and the fire is still outside on the patio all right so I go outside to wake my neighbors up and then right when we're ready to walk out because it's February it's cold it's snowing the day before we walk out the front door and my entire covered patio just exploded like a bomb went off. Wow. Shook the, I mean, shook the building. It was like windows blew out. I'm like, Holy cow, Rob, what have you done? You know, it's like, Holy cow. How did you get here? I didn't say that at the time, (laughs) but I was like, man. And it just began this journey of like, who the heck am I? And my wife's journey of who the heck is he? Right. People could have died that night. And, that was truly the bottom of my life that that evening um people could have gotten hurt fortunately nobody did but began this journey of healing and i had to go figure it out and i ran back to aa i ran back to church i ran i got discipled by don mccreevy over at foothills bible church and chad brugman over red rocks church and it was just like i was trying to find people to help me figure out what the heck happened to me right and my wife's trying to figure out what happened to him yeah and uh and over time it just became a place of being just being humble and transparent and vulnerable with people like they'll say how you doing like if you if we see each other at the grocery store eric and you say rob how you doing you better be ready for how i'm really doing i'm gonna tell you (laughs) right because when i hide that from people close friends i do stuff like this thing right yeah and so that began a journey of confession and i confessed to authorities in june of that year what i did and they came and arrested me six months later. It wouldn't let me turn myself in for whatever reason. Like God's hand is all over this thing. When you see like, man, I confess to what happened. And six months later, not knowing when we were going to get, when I was going to get arrested, we, um, I get arrested on, it's crazy thing about 19 felonies and 13 misdemeanors. Wow. For that one event. Yeah. Wow. On a hundred thousand dollar bond. And we're just like, God, you're in control of this. Like you are. Was that like arson or endangerment? Yeah. Like what was yeah, it? Yeah. So it was arson, endangering lives, you know, dangerous yeah, yeah. properties, all this stuff. And, and they went for the fences because obviously you're going to plead down. But the day I got arrested, you know, we're living in this house that we're in right now. And this, this, this kind lady let us move into the basement, knowing our whole story. We told her the whole story and she's like, Hey, you can live here. So we've been, we, we lived downstairs, the place we're living now for three years right? Just the kindness of our heart, just, you know, we paid minimal rent and really helped us get a leg up. And, and that's where we were living at this time. And so my kids never saw me get arrested. My, you know, nobody did except for my wife, which was hard enough. And they treated me like a massive criminal. And I was like, dude, they knew where I was every second of my life. Like I checked in with them and, but they just would not let us turn ourselves in. And then they're like, 
you've been on the run. I'm like, whatever. So it was, it was the weirdest thing, man. But, but God reduced my bond from a hundred thousand dollars to 25 grand, which was a miracle. My, my attorney had never seen anything like that. Wow. And so it was these confirmations, like just not, not, not being like, you know, in, you know, traveling through the, you know, traveling through with Moses and like, God, please take care of us again. It's like, I've done that how many times. Right. And so I just believed that he was going to take care of us. And so I was out and about and, um, eight months later, I got sentenced to what should have been anywhere from two years of work release to 56 years in prison. And the judge gave me a 13 year prison sentence in 2013. Wow. Okay. Yeah. So that's 2021. So that didn't happen. Um, right. That's devastating. God's miracles, man. And in, uh, Ten and a half months later, I was released to a halfway house. I was over in Delta, Colorado in prison. Um, ten and a half months later, I was released to a halfway house over here in Littleton, uh, ten and a half, or in Inglewood, about 8.2 miles from where my family lived. And when I was gone, my wife was having her own journey of like, who the heck is my husband? She talked to God, not listened to all the chatter of her friends and realized I'm going to stay with him. Right. And that was what she had to go through. It was like, what did God want her to do? And I'm grateful for that. Very grateful. And she protected me from the kids. And so she's a single mom trying to figure out where to put the kids in school, do life. Like, thank God of church communities. All you church communities out there, thank you for you because mm. you supported my wife. Red Rocks Church supported my wife. Foothills Bible Church supported my wife. It took care of them when I was gone. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, so what was that like, go going to to prison? Like that's got to be kind of terrifying. And well, when you don't know what the heck to do, like, do you tell people what you did, or do you not tell them what you did? Do you tell them you're a Christian? Do you hide your faith? Do you hit someone in the mouth when they confront you? Like, what do you do, right? And I I was at such peace with God that I just capitalized on that time to literally just read 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 my Bible, read books, just stay out of the way really. And fortunately I got put in Delta after a month and that's a minimum security camp. There's no fences. It's just out in the middle of, out in the middle of boonies of Delta, Colorado. And they have a 10 or 20 foot wide dirt path that goes around it. So if there's footprints, they know someone escaped. Mm. Right. So, but you, it was an old college campus that we, that we went to. So it literally was like being on a college campus in a weird way, but I'd never felt threatened. I never really felt scared. I just felt the presence of God. And so I, you know, studied it. If people saw the video of us talking right now, you know, doing this, like over my right shoulder is a stack of books that I read when I was gone. And it's 42 books that I studied. John Ortberg, Mark Batterson, you know, Dallas Willard. I actually read the Bible from front to back for the first time wow. in my Christian life. And so I just read and became a student. My wife one day said, honey, just please stop writing me because you're sending me so much stuff. I don't have time to read it. <laughs> wow. You know, because she's like, this is like you're in seminary and I'm here doing like, stop crying, you know, and I'm trying to put food on the table type thing. Right. And so it was hard for her. It was very hard for her and hard for me to be away from them, but I had to make the most of my time. That's why I became a huge fan of Neil Anderson, you know, victor of the darkness and bondage breaker and who I am in Christ. And I had to step into that. And I don't live it all the time. Right. But I have that deep belief now I truly am God's workmanship. I truly am a child of God. I am truly part of the vine, like all the stuff that God says we are. I don't have to earn it. I already am that. So I, I just studied, 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 and made the most of my time. And I got fit and got in shape. And, and then I got released on a charge that they don't let into halfway houses because of insurance reasons. But because of pastors and our friends here, the reason I got in this halfway house, because there was a, like a stack of, letters written to this halfway house says we are rob's community he's gonna be fine mm. i just had a lot of god's favor through that and i'm so grateful for it yeah so you uh okay so it sounds like you that was a real time of growth for you and that you embraced it you decided like look i'm not gonna just be mad about it or you, you kind of owned it obviously and you you own the the where you were it sounds like you had a little bit of time beforehand to go wait a minute what's happening and you had some time to go kind of consider how you would approach that. What was it like? Because so I was it sudden or was it like you just through all this study that you found that, that you convinced yourself finally about who God said you were, that you were that person? 
it, it was through study. I mean, I had to, cause I never really, I didn't hear that a lot in church. Which yeah. Is which is fascinating, right? Like that's a yeah. whole deal. It's like, you are a child of God. Like we need to hammer that into new believers and stuff. Like you are this, you don't have to earn it. You already are it. Like when you want to hurt yourself, you say, no, I am God's workmanship. And when you want to, you know, stream me overweight and stuff like that, and you want to lose weight and look at us like I'm God's temple. Well, this is an ugly temple. I'm going to lose some. I mean, it's like believing this stuff and striving to become a lot of what God says that we already are. Right. So that's, that, that really is what I had to do when I was gone because I had to come out and, and here's the interesting thing though, that is grateful, you know, as I am that my wife stayed with me and, you know, everything that we've gone through when I'm incarcerated, right. You don't have counseling and you're sure as heck not going to open up to your case manager about <laughs> how you really feel about life and stuff. So even though I was really able to work on my identity in Christ, I still held on to some, some stuff in my marriage that I didn't let go. Yeah. And coming out of it, I, you know, I, I was honest, like I didn't love my wife as I should have for all that she went through. I was still holding on to this thing of, well, we got here together. If, if this would, if our marriage would, if, if this would have been great, if, 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 then I never would have, would have, would have, instead of just what I've learned now is like, dude, it doesn't matter what they do. Mm -hmm. Your responsibility is how do you internalize this and hold it up against the word of God? Right. If it's against what God says, discard it. Right. And it was, but so I, I had this kind of, we got here together mentality for a while, really up until 2019, when we went through some real intense marriage counseling, I was able to really see, and she was able to really see how much we had created these false narratives about each other, really based on past pain prior to marriage that entered into, and then we each exasperated from each other, you know, and it was like, yeah. And that's kind of the way it went for a while um, afterwards too, you know, but it was this journey of, I have two kids now and a wife to take care of. So when you have felonies, you go wait tables. That's what I've done before. So I just literally got a couple of jobs waiting tables and rode my bike everywhere and yeah. <laughs> at the halfway house. And I mean, I got released on parole early and just, I mean, a lot of amazing things happened that should have taken a lot longer time. But again, I just really feel like, God's favor was upon us in so many. I mean, my wife and I could write a couple of books about what God's done in our life. So I hold on to those things when I'm feeling down in the dump sometimes. And, you know, I still deal with suicide ideation sometimes, Eric, and, and I immediately go to who I am in Christ, which is why I want people to learn that so wholeheartedly families. I do interventions with and stuff that if they have a Christian background, I'm like, okay, what's done is done. We can't let that define where we're going and we have to somehow break free from this to live a healthier life going forward. And that's what I've had to do. Yeah. How did you get into your ministry today? <laughs> I always laugh at that question. I don't know why, because it's kind of one of these things that, you know, I want to rise up and, and, and get over this belief that I can't, I don't have what it takes to provide for my family. That was one of my false things I told myself. Right. Yeah. So when you have felonies on your record and almost $200,000 in criminal restitution, you know, for damage done because of the fire, it's kind of defeating or it could be. So I, I remember a guy told me once, he said, Hey man, you can either look at life as obstacles that are going to stop you. Or when you see an obstacle, it's an opportunity to get creative. So this is your opportunity to get creative. So after nine failed attempts to get a good sales job, which most of them were like straight commission. The, the manager's like, hey, man, we love you. We'd love to hire you. I'd say, well, before that background check thing, let me just tell you my story. I, and I'd give them like, you know, the, the four minute version. Yeah. And they're like, hey, man, sounds like you're over that. We'd still love to hire you based on, because I mean, I've got an MBA and like great marketing, sales experience, all this stuff, right? But every time HR kicked me out and said, felony, you're out. Felony, yeah. you're out. And I was like, this is not cool. Which is one of the, that's one of the problems with our society at the moment. Totally. Like we're, we're incarcerating people at astronomical rates. And then also at the same time, refusing to employ them. Like what well, we got, you got to figure out, I know it's a risk, but man, that's, we got to figure out how to care for people better. Yeah. And fortunately a lot of companies are changing that. Like, you know, Colorado got the ban the box thing. So you, there's no box on the application that says, have you ever had a felony? Oh, nice. Gone. Should be gone. Uh, it's a it's a progressive thing for people to get them on like whatever the time frames are, but that's gone. So now they can at least have a chance. A guy like me can have a chance to come in and interview and tell you what happened voluntarily if I want to. 
right? But but to just throw my thing in the trash because I check a box that I screwed up in my life. Well, guess what? Person reading it, so have you. Right. You just don't have it on your record. And so after too many of the rejections, I was like, okay, God, this makes no sense. I cannot go the traditional route. And I don't know any businesses that hire felons. So a friend of mine said, hey, Rob, have you ever thought about getting trained to do interventions and recovery coaching? He's like, you know, good recovery and obviously no bad recovery. <laughs> you know, um, you've been coached, you've coached people before and you, um, you know, this like you business world. And so I was like, no, let me, let me learn about it. So oddly enough, two weeks later, a lady was coming to Denver to train some people. I went through a three-day crash course and she basically almost let me take it for free. And was like, okay. And, and unfortunately with that, it's kind of a crash course. And then, okay, go be an interventionist. Yeah, there's right. Lot, there's a lot more training that should happen in that. But for me, it was like, okay, I'm going to go be an interventionist. But I just, I have a lot of business sense and things. So I like, I had a, you know, it, it was a quick start for me. So I literally incorporated the business, went out and got running and just started meeting treatment centers. I just go knock on doors and say, Hey, Eric, my name's Rob. I'm an interventionist, you know, and I found other interventionists to train me and at least that lived in Colorado to walk me through some situations. So I had some mentors because I, because I hear this weird thing, like, having a mentor in your life is a good thing. Yeah. Right. So I pay, so I pay attention to that. So I found some one interventionist particular and then a lady that trained me and I just started just getting out there and doing it. I learned how to do recovery coaching. Like I started taking classes through PCCI professional Christian coaching Institute and went through some other interventionist training. So really since January 1st, 2016 is when I incorporated my business and, and it's been tough. I mean, it's a hard industry. It's, it's ups and downs, you know, it's kind of like, you know, if you're not working on intervention, you're not getting paid. It's not like you're on a salary anywhere. You're doing your own entrepreneur thing. Right. Right. And so I just have tried to stay in front of as many people as I can. And, and I've had up seasons and down seasons. I've had seasons where it's been so incredibly hard to keep constant flow of, of business. Cause I help a lot of people for free too. Yeah. And, and, and free don't feed me, you know what I mean? So <laughs> it was like, I was doing a lot of those things cause I just don't want people to suffer. And in turn, we suffered a little bit. So I ended up getting a job with the treatment center doing outreach for 15 months. And it was a good salary, got us where we needed to go. And then they started letting people off. And that was in 2019, they let a bunch of people go. And then COVID hit in 2020, you know? So it's been this thing of, you know, it's, it's reminding people of what you do, which is why I spent last year learning a lot of marketing stuff that you and I crossed paths with. And, yep. But it was like learning the solopreneur thing and learning what I, what I realized recently was, and this sounds interesting, which maybe you can relate and know people that can talk about this, but I was doing so much marketing with online challenges and summits and things like that. that I wasn't doing enough prospecting, mm, right. You know, doing a lot of cool things and like interviewing people and doing all the shows and podcasting and all these things doing, doing, doing. And that took me away a little bit from, where I think God was really calling me is the intervention world. Right. And so through some great business coaching I've had recently and part of this great men's ministry, I'm a part of, we talk a lot about that part of it and just having this laser focus on instead of you're great, you're good at all these things. Let's get great at one thing right now. Yeah. For So for 2021, like literally my focus is helping families through the process of interventions and not doing the, you know, not building the recovery coaching side of things. Now people want coaching. Yeah, of course I'll do it, but not actively building that, but saying in the single lane focus of my name is Rob Lohman. I'm a child of God and I help people through the art of interventions, you know, and that's the laser focus I'm having for 2021 and, and beyond. Yeah, that is so powerful and so needed. I think uh, we need specialists who who can figure that out. Uh, I think it's an essential part of discipleship, right? Just like for you to to figure out, hey, this is, you know, what you're doing and be able to turn your kind of things you were trying to cover up with all that stuff into to get underneath it and get to get to where Jesus wanted to heal you. So totally. That's so powerful. Rob, I love it. I think it's that we, we talk for a long time and uh, I always appreciate what you do. Your website is liftedfromtherut.com. People can find you there. Um, is there anything you want to leave us with? I just, if, if people are contemplating a loved one that's struggling with something, whether it's addiction or depression or anxiety or something, and we just sit and we watch it happen, 
like that does nothing. So I just want to encourage people to step into a situation with love and reach out to a professional to help navigate that conversation and step into that. Because if we don't do anything and something happens, it's, it's a tragic thing. So, and, and, and I always give people my phone number to say, just call me. Like if you're sitting there and I mean it, like I don't give my number out just for the heck of it to say, Hey, Hey, there's a number. That was really cool. You know, and if you're hearing this two years down the road, it's like, call me up at 970-331-4469 or send me a text and say, I need to talk. And here's why. I mean, this is a horrible story to share, but it's a reality, right? I mean, I have had families call me. I always follow up with people, whether they use me or not or whatever. And a couple instances, I've had families call me and just say, hey, you know, XYZ is struggling and we want to do something. Right. And then they hear about like the intervention process and confronting and putting a plan together, like all this, right? And you never hear from them again. So a lot of times it's a huge, it's unfortunately, it's a big percentage. But I've had two instances where I've called the family up and said, hey, I just want to call and see how you're doing. Right. You need resources and stuff now still in how is so-and-so your loved one. And I know two times they passed away because of addiction. Wow. You know, and, and I know they had the regret because we talked about it of, I wish I would have done something when I called you. I don't care if it's me or anybody. Right. But if the thought is there that someone's struggling so much and you want to reach out, don't let that be the story to where I wish I would have just do it. You're not obligated by any means but get the resources, get the right direction, and then have some new tools for yourself because it's nothing worse than not taking action and the loved one passes away. You're like, dang it, I wish I would have done something. So that, that's my word of encouragement to anyone that's on the fence of trying to get some help. Yeah, absolutely. The hardest thing to live with in life is regret. You don't want that. And uh, you know, maybe the Lord wants to use you to intervene in that per- your person's life. And, uh, you know, and maybe, and maybe you don't sometimes, sometimes he doesn't, but do what you can so that you can have a, a clear conscience and, and pray and give out God an opportunity to work. Rob, thanks so much for being here. I appreciate you sharing your story. Friends go pick it up, uh, lifted from the rut. It is, uh, it is, is a worthwhile, worthwhile place to, to follow and connect with Rob if you can. Thanks Rob. I appreciate it. Thank you very much, Eric. God bless.